As Jason just said, we are in Psalm 145 today. The book of Psalms, we talked about this way back at the beginning of our study in Psalms. We talked about how it's broken up into several different books within a book. And Psalm 145 is part of the last book of the Psalms that really tie everything together in the whole book. And they really focus on the subject of praise. And so today, Psalm 145 is a psalm of praise. And it's really the last psalm that's attributed to David. And it's one of eight or nine psalms that's written in a special way. Stick with me because we're going to get into some poetry, writing, grammatical stuff for just a moment. But it's important, and I'll explain why when we're finished. But he wrote this in what's called an acrostic. Okay, that may be a sort of unfamiliar term to you. You're probably more familiar with the term of an acronym. So what's the difference? Well, an acronym is like an abbreviation of a word that's composed of the initial letters of the words or the phrase. So Federal Bureau of Investigation, the acronym for that is FBI. So North American Mission Board, NAM, N-A-M-B. So you hear those acronyms uh, pretty often, and acrostic is a little different. It's where the first word, or sometimes a syllable, or the letter, uh, from a paragraph, or a line, or a sentence, or something, it spells out another word, or something, or a sentence, in kind of a poetic form. So I've got an example, a very high-tech example for you. You can go to the next slide. So here is a, an acronym for CATS. Cuddly, acrobatic, tenacious, and soft. I did not make this up, but you can Google that. Um, that's a simple ac- uh, acrostic. Um, you can go to the next one. This one's a little bit more biblically focused. Uh, John David mentioned this in Sunday school last week. This is one that you may have heard before. It's the word ACTS, not A-X-E, A-C-T-S, and it stands for these things, and this kind of helps guide your prayer time is what it's for. So we go to the Lord in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. And so that's an, that's an acrostic that helps us understand that better. So an acronym can't form a poem or a sentence, but an acrostic can. And that's what we find in Psalm 145. So what's the point? Why did David write this way? Did he do it just to show off his writing skills and impress people? Well, I do think it is impressive. Um, That's not his point. I think that his intent here in writing Psalm 145 in an acrostic is to be a mnemonic device. Now, here's another word that we need to help understand. Um, A mnemonic device is kind of like a technique that's used to help people understand or memorize something, kind of help your brain to better encode and then recall that information. So an example of this is you guys have probably learned the directions on a compass with the phrase, never eat soggy Wheaties or something soggy. Well, I don't, it's varies from family to family probably, but you get it north, south, east, and west, or like guitar players. Learn the notes of the strings with funny phrases like Eddie ate dynamite, goodbye Eddie. So E, A, D, those are the notes of the string. B, B, G, B, E. So there's a lot of those. But that's, it's, it's simple like 
phrases or letters to help you understand more information. That's what a mnemonic device really is. And you can see how that would be helpful. But why is that important for Psalm 145? Well, on a very practical level, that made this poem, written in an acrostic, made this poem easier to memorize. That was the point. David wrote it this way to help the people of Israel remember this and be able to recount it easier. Now, if you don't know Hebrew, like me, I don't know Hebrew, you probably won't realize it, especially reading it in your English translation, but each verse in Psalm 145 begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, it doesn't look that way in the English translation, but in the original text, this is how it comes across as an acrostic. And there are really about eight other psalms that do this. Most notably is the longest, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. And that's amazing, the details of how that's written. Do some research on Psalm 119 as an acrostic, and it will blow your mind on how that was inspired that way. Um, Just a a little quick side note, because if you do look at this, In other places, you're going to find out pretty quickly that the Hebrew alphabet has more letters than this chapter has verses. So Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. Uh, This this chapter has only, as you can see, only 21 verses. So what's what's going on in here? Well, some translation differences impact how many verses this psalm has. The more newly discovered Dead Sea Scrolls. Include an additional phrase after verse 13. If you have an English Standard Version or maybe some other ones, you see that um, kind of in brackets and with a little footnote there. Okay, That would complete the acrostic because that's where the missing letter would be. But then there are some scholars who actually argue that it's omitted, it's left out intentionally. And if you look just quickly at verse 14... The verse immediately following where the missing letter would be, it says that the Lord upholds all who are falling. And so some uh, scholars argue that it was intentional to illustrate the idea of mankind who has fallen. They can't even get an acrostic right. They missed a letter. And that was an intentional omission. So whether the Hebrew letter that's missing should be there, and this phrase that we have in some of our translations or not, whether it should be there or not, it doesn't change the major thrust of this entire poem, this entire chapter, and it's this, and it's very simple. The Lord is great and worthy of praise. God is great and worthy of praise. And in view of such a great God, and with so much that David wants to say, he just can't say it all. There are, I didn't look this up, I probably should have, but there are, I'm even going to get it wrong, but there are millions of words in the English English language, right? Dictionaries are, are full of them and they don't even encompass it all. There's no way an author could use every word available to them. But you could maybe use every letter of the alphabet, right? And that's what David aims to do here. Even though he wants to say more, he's going to, put it this way intentionally. And I think he does it for a specific reason, to be a mnemonic device, to help the Israelites teach this to their kids. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew history, they would teach their kids uh, Deuteronomy 6, where it says, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. 
Okay, they would teach that phrase and some more to their kids from a very early age. And I think Psalm 145 was the same way. They would teach this to their kids and that their kids would memorize it. This psalm specifically is actually part of the current and still used Jewish prayer book. And it's used more than any other psalm. So on a practical level, writing it as an acrostic made it easier to memorize. On a theological level, on a maybe deeper level, you would say, it gives the impression of completeness, right? From A to Z, we're encompassing all that God is, and we're praising him with every letter we have available to us. And so poems like this in Scripture help us to see that great truth also has great beauty to it. There's completeness to it. And and as we're going to read it here in just a moment, but as you can tell as we read it, David is excited, like he's full of excitement and joy and emotion. I mean, he's reflective, he's elated, he's uh, full of truth. And sometimes when we get that way, it can be difficult to express the feelings that we really want to say, right? I think you guys get that, whether it's overcome with grief at the loss of someone or whether it's just you're so excited you don't have words to say, Sometimes emotions do that to us. And so sometimes authors in scripture especially, they write in a style that's going to help them have an outlet for how they're feeling. The book of Lamentations, the whole book, if you look at it, was really written in an acrostic form as well, amazingly. And it was likely written that way for, to help the author maintain some kind of control over his thoughts as he was just overcome with emotion and weeping and grieving over the fall of Jerusalem. So when our emotions are running high, it can be helpful to organize our thoughts through the use of literary devices like a poem or a song or like an acrostic like David does here. So all of that to say, Psalm 145 should be a psalm that we come back to time and time again in our families, in our homes, in our churches, in our worship. So I want to read this a little bit differently. The way that uh, it was written lends itself to kind of a congregational sort of a reading. So I realize we all have different translations. So I'm not going to ask you to read out of your translation on a few of the verses They're going to be up on the screen. And I want you on those verses to join with me in reading that this morning, and then we'll pray after we're finished. So verses 3, 6, 9, 17, and 21, and they'll be on the screen. Um, You guys join with me. And if you would, would you stand as we read God's word together today? So I'll read all 21 verses. You guys join with me on those, and feel free to follow along in your Bible in between. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. 
They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is gracious in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, may your word today cause us to do this very thing, to cause our mouths to proclaim your greatness forever and ever. But Lord, that necessitates a relationship with you. And so I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts today. Those who don't know you, God, I pray that they would see you for who you are and they put their faith in you alone today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Thank you for reading that with me. If you go back to the first verse, you can see David, who is the king of Israel, recognizes and celebrates that he's not really the true king. Do you see that? I will extol you, my God and king. The king is saying there's somebody higher than him. I think that's significant, specifically for the people of Israel, to see that their leader recognizes that he's still under authority. You can see the the theme of David's words here in the first few verses. They're, They're just praise. They're just pouring out. It's almost like you ever taken a bottle of soda and it got shook up and then you... You twist the top off and it shoots everywhere. It's almost how I feel like David is. He's just been so stirred by the Spirit of God that he's, it's just exploding everywhere. Praise is just pouring out. It's getting on everybody. When you see and when you know God for who he really is, that's what's going to happen in us. It's going to be that way. Is there any other response more appropriate than praise? No. There's not. And David says it's not just a one-time thing. Guys, it's not just an every Sunday you set aside to praise the Lord thing. What does he say in verse 2? He says he's going to praise him every day forever and ever. That's the definition of a habit, right? Every day forever and ever. There are advantages to doing stuff every day, right? When I was growing up, my dad had a wind-up alarm clock. Now, I don't know why there were electric ones available, uh, I don't, but he had a wind-up al- alarm clock. And so every night before bed, he would sit on the edge of his bed, and he would wind that thing up. 
And then every morning it would go off. I didn't usually hear it, but it would go off and he'd get up for work. And as I thought about that, um, with the idea of what David says, he says, I'm going to do this every day, forever and ever. There's some advantages to doing something every day. Think about a car that maybe you have that you don't drive every day. What do they say is the worst thing for a car? To sit, right? Because it gets neglected. If you're driving it every day, you know the tire's low and you fill it up on your way. You know you need gas. You know you need an oil change. You know you need to look at the wipers or whatever is wrong. You, because you do it every day, you drive it every day, you recognize stuff isn't falling through the cracks. It's the same way with a home or that kind of thing. If you do it every day, if it's your habit, then you're not going to neglect it. And if you stop what you're doing and you praise the Lord, if that's built into your day at some point, you're far, far less likely to ignore or let your relationship with the Lord suffer or fall through the cracks because you're dressing him every day. You're walking with him regularly. And David says his plan was to do it forever and ever. So let me just insert something here, and I, I hope I don't offend, but if, if you're thinking, man, all of eternity is going to be just spent praising the Lord day after day after day, if you're thinking of that and you think that's going to be kind of boring or that's going to be kind of mundane or that's going to get stale. Let me just encourage you in this. You need to get to know the Lord better because it won't be, it won't be boring. You know, uh, we need to grab hold. If that's our thought, we need to grab hold of what David says here and what Christian martyrs down through the ages have believed given up their lives to go be with the Lord every day, forever and ever, for all of eternity. Books have been filled with names of people who've given up the stuff of this life to go do that. And so it should be something that we willingly do. And it's not going to be mundane because look at verse 3. His ways, his greatness, they're unsearchable. You cannot figure out God. You can't add it all up to make sense of it all. Born-again Christians, you're going to spend the rest of your eternity praising and worshiping the unsearchable God. That shouldn't cause any kind of fear or doubt or, or anything like that. It should cause praise. We can figure each other out pretty well. I think we're at the point in our world and society where not much phases us. That's not necessarily a good thing. But I mean, you hear about some public figure falling into disgrace because of um, sin or whatever the problem might be. And it's like, that's sad, but doesn't really surprise me. I think think that's where we're at. What What a bad place to be. We can figure out one another, but we'll never figure out God. We will be searching his truth out forever and ever. How many of you all have ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon? If you never have, it's worth traveling to do in your lifetime. But if you haven't, you've probably stood somewhere where you were just overwhelmed with the bigness of whatever it was. Where you just stood there and it almost takes your breath away. I think that's what, I don't know that there are days and nights in heaven, but I think that's what like every day is going to be. I heard a pastor say this one time, every day is like 
when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, it just takes your breath away. Every day in heaven, you wake up and you see God, and it just takes your breath away. And then the next day, and you think, man, it couldn't get any better than this. And the next day you get up, and it's, and it's better, and it happens all over again. That's, I think, what eternity is going to be like. Where our minds just can't take it in, God is unfathomable, unsearchable. Every day in heaven with him for eternity is going to be fresh and good and overwhelming. And as magnificent as this view of God is, verses 4 through 7 show us that that doesn't stop with you. we We need to see God in that way, but it doesn't end with us. This view of God, of who he is, is supposed to be taught and passed down to the next generation and to the next generation and so on. And, and here's the thing that, that can be frustrating as parents. When our kids don't listen, right? Whether our kids listen to us or not, whether they choose and believe the same way that we do, it's still our calling as parents to communicate this and show this to our kids and teach this to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren if we get the chance. Whether our kids listen to us or not, we should be commending the works of the Lord to them regularly. We should be meditating on his wondrous works. David says that we should be declaring his greatness. We should sing aloud of his righteousness and communicate with our kids, with both our words and with our lives, that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. So moms and dads, this is the burning question for us today is how do we walk with the Lord? Jason already said our kids see that. What we love, our kids will love. What we make time for, our kids make time for. If we take worship lightly, you better believe our kids are going to take it lightly. They won't be important. If we downplay the role of the church in the life of our family, and if you do that in your own life, then our kids are going to see that and they're going to live that out to a worse extent than we do. If we fail to remind the kids of our church of the greatness of God, then we need to get to know him better too. So with VBS starting tomorrow, it is a great privilege and a joy to be able to communicate that to our kids. And we pray and hope that your kids will join us for that. Now, if you move to verses 10, 11, and 12, we see what Christians or saints, as they're referred to here, what they're going to do in response to, to seeing who God is and to, to, to knowing God. They're going to do several things. So I'm just going to list them off quickly. It says that we're going to give thanks. We're going to bless the Lord. We're going to speak of the glory of his kingdom. We're going to tell of his power. Christians who know God are going to make known to the children of men, everybody, his mighty deeds. Christians are going to make known the splendor of his kingdom. Now notice with me, all of those things involve communicating with your mouths. Did you see that? Giving thanks, blessing the Lord, speaking, telling, making known singing was mentioned earlier. All of these things are done with our mouths. Moms and dads, our lives better 
back up what we say we believe. But it can't just be your lives. You must speak. We must speak to our kids the truth. It must come out of our mouths. How we speak matters. Our tone, the content. So is your speech, what you're saying, making known the kingdom of God in the way that it ought to be? We ought to be doing those things because it's the kingdom of God that's everlasting. Not just our own lives or even our kids' or grandkids' lives, but past them, generations away, forever and ever. All people everywhere, that's what he means by children of men, all people everywhere need to know about this kingdom. They need to understand who God is from his people. It's a kingdom that can't be shaken. It's a kingdom that cannot be infiltrated with evil. It's a kingdom that endures forever. That's hope in our day, to be a part of a group and a thing like that. And it's not something that we do. It's something that God does in his people and for his people. Now, verses 14 through 20, they kind of take a different turn here. And I want to focus on those. They at least bring some different things into focus um, or some different parts of the same elements into a focus. See, the one who reigns in glory and power and who rules in splendor and majesty, he condescends. He comes down to lift up and to hold up those who are prone to falling. Now, the verb that's used in these verses here shows that the Lord is constantly doing this. It wasn't a one-time thing. The Lord is constantly doing this. He is upholding and even lifting up those who are bowed down. And I just love the contrast here that, that David says. He says that the Lord lifts up those who are willingly bowed down. Do you see that contrast? This is not new to David or alone to his writing. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three says, One's pride will bring him low. But he who is humble will receive honor, will be lifted up. Jesus himself in Matthew 23 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the Lord lifts up those who are willingly bowed down. It's that willingly that's the trouble for us. The secret to success that the Bible gives is very different from what the world tells us. The Bible says that the secret to success is submitting to authority, giving respect, and being generous with what we have. The world's secret to success says that you gain authority, that you demand respect, and that you obtain wealth at all costs. See how different they are? In, in verse 15, and the reality is everyone has and gets what they have from the Lord anyway. The eyes of all look to you, he says there. David is reminding us and explaining to us that every person, whether they're in great authority and have great wealth or whether they're poor and have no authority, it doesn't matter. Everybody looks to the Lord for what they have in need. Whether they want, people want to believe it or not, the God of creation continues to sustain his creation. 
to his create everything that he has created. The absolutely incredible thing about this, and I don't know if you've caught it just yet, is just that the God who owns it all, he gives what's necessary food-wise to all of his creation in due season. The Lord is righteous in his ways, and he is magnificent in splendor, and yet he opens up his hand to care for every living thing. The smallest ant, to the biggest giraffe, to people, he gives it. And here's the incredible part. Even to the people that reject him, he blesses. Now, we know that God loves his enemies. He's, we have been called to do that. And so to some degree, God loves his enemies. He still sends the sun to rise on the just and the evil. He sends the rain to fall on them regardless. There's some providential care that God gives to what he has created. This proves what verse 17 says. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Even when he doesn't need to be kind, he is kind. He's extending patience. But I think that there is a delineation here in verses 18 through 20. Things that are reserved for those who respond to his calling in faith and obedience. Look at these verses with me. These are wonderful things that are brought up. The Lord is near. He fulfills the desire He hears and saves. The Lord preserves. Like those are great things, truths to cling to. And they drive home what he already said in verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. But I think there are conditions that are listed here. Look at verses 18 through 20 again. It does say that the Lord is near but it's to a specific person. The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears the cry and saves those who fear him. And the Lord preserves all who love him. You see those conditions that he lists? Now we've already talked about how the writers of Psalms and maybe some other places too, they they sort of struggled to understand why the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. The Lord is good to all and continues to provide for his creation, but there is going to come a day when his justice will be crystal clear to all as well. Verse 20 tells us this. The Lord preserves all who love him, but what does he say next? But all the wicked he will destroy. Don't misunderstand the patience and kindness of God. Don't think that he is only a God of love who is good to all and will save all. Christians, believers, we're not universalists. We don't believe that just because you were created means that you're going to be saved. God demands justice. And if you have sinned, you have fallen from his grace, and there is a price to pay. Justice demands that God judge the wicked. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, verse 17 says. But verse 20 says, the wicked he will destroy. These aren't 
in opposition to one another. These are working together. And so it helps us understand that God is just as good in his mercy as he is in his justice. Or you could flip that around and say God is just as good in his justice in judging the wicked as he is in his mercy. And so as this psalm really comes to a close, I think that we have to consider the conditions that are set forth in these verses. So let's put them in question, reflective form. Verse 18, have you called on the Lord in truth? Maybe you've called out to him, but maybe it wasn't in truth. Maybe it wasn't in response and in obedience. Maybe it was in anger or frustration in not understanding what's going on in your life. And you, you might call out to him, but have you called out to him in truth? Verse 19, do you fear the Lord? Or do you live your life as though he might not exist at all? Doing what you want, treating people how you want, saying whatever you want. Do you fear the Lord? And then verse 20, do you love him? Or do you love yourself more? Or do you love the things of this world more? Because there's only one God and it's not you. It's not the things of this world. So who do you love? Do you love him? If we have not called on the Lord in truth, if we don't fear him, if we don't love him, then we can't do what David does throughout this psalm. And here at the close in verse 21, he says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord forever and ever. If you don't, if you don't know him, if you don't fear him, if you don't love him, you can't speak that way about the Lord. What we should be, is that what we're using our mouths for? To sing his praises, to speak his praises, or for praising yourself or for tearing somebody else down or for speaking lies. If, if this is the tone of your life and the cry of your heart, then you'll not only be doing it yourself, but like David, you're going to want every other person to sing the praises of God too. You're going to want every other person joining you and blessing his holy name forever and ever. If the cry of your heart and the, 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 path of your life, the tone of your life is to praise the Lord, you're not going to want to just go and be at church alone and do it. You're going to want to be with brothers and sisters. You're going to want to be with the congregation. It's a blessing beyond words to know that the God of everything looks down and cares for little old me, little old you. And when we're convinced that he does, and he does. When we're convinced of that, then we're going to want everybody else to know the same thing. We're going to want to speak it and to sing it. And I think this is just another example of how real, genuine worship organically and fittingly leads the church and Christians to evangelism and missions. We don't have to have a giant missions conference, church. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but we don't need it to be motivated to go and preach the gospel. God's love for you and your recognition of that is enough. The fact that he cares for little old you is enough. Who God is and a right view of that motivates Christians to share him with others. 
We want, like David says in verse 21, we want all flesh to bless His name right alongside of us forever and ever. God is great. God is powerful. And His kingdom will have no end. But He's also a God who is near to us. He raises up those who are bowed down. He's faithful to His promises. But He's also faithful to not leave the guilty go unpunished. The Lord is righteous and good. He is slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love, but he's not like other pagan gods who say, do whatever you want. He's the one true God, and we worship him as he calls us to, in spirit and in truth. And so the questions that I'll repeat again as we think of this and reflect on this this morning is, have you called on him in truth? Do you fear him? And do you love him? David knew the joy of being loved and cared for and known by God. And friend, you can too. You can know the same thing when you call on him in truth by believing the gospel message that Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. And by recognizing that you are one of those sinners and putting your faith completely in what he has done and not in what you can do. Believing that he willingly died the death that you deserve so that you might be acceptable in God's sight. Then, as a child of the King, your heart is changed by His grace. Your life is now different than it used to be. Now it's lived for His glory and not your own, for His joy and not your own. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about a relationship with Christ is that when His, when his joy and His truth is your aim, you receive joy and you walk in truth. And he gives that to his people. If the plan for every believer, according to David, is to praise the name of the Lord God forever and ever and demonstrate and talk and sing and preach about his goodness and his truth, then let's be sure that we're doing it today. Let's be sure that we're doing it individually. Let's be sure that we're doing it as a family. Let's be sure that we're doing it as a church.